Welcome to the 328th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with anthropologist Adia Benton. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 25th, 2021, there are 4,454,812 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Rather than continuing to read so many of the COVID death numbers as I had been doing over the previous months, I'm turning now to discussion of other COVID measures that people would like to see. People have been sending me these. Please do continue to send them on Twitter at US of Disaster or email me. This one comes from Twitter user Heather Ringo, and she would like to know what's the percentage of vaccinated people suffering from long COVID. She adds, she'd like to know the number of people forced to work in person who qualify for workers' compensation due to long haul COVID. Thanks to Heather Ringo for those provocative questions, which move us into discussion of long COVID and the many things, just scratching the surface there, the many things we don't know about that. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Jacob de which appeared in the New York Times. Jacob Devario, the guitarist and singer who led Kassav, an internationally popular band from the French Antilles, died on July 30th in a hospital in Pointe-à-Pitre, Guadeloupe, the island where he lived. He was 65. The cause was COVID-19, Agents France Press reported. Mr. Devario and uh, and the founder of Kassav, the bassist Pierre-Edouard Decimus, created a style called Zouk, fusing Afro-Caribbean traditions on the French Antilles of the French Antilles with sleek electronic dance music. Kassav made nearly two dozen official studio albums, and the band recorded an additional two dozen studio albums credited to, credited to individual members, along with extensive live recordings. Kassav toured worldwide and sold in the millions, particularly in France and in French-speaking Caribbean and African countries. Mr. Devario shaped a vast majority of the band's songs as guitarist, songwriter, arranger, or producer, and his amiably gruff voice often shared the band's lead vocals with lyrics in French Antillean Creole. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, paid tribute on Twitter, saying, Sacred Zouk Monster, outstanding guitarist, emblematic voice of the Antilles, Jacob de Vario, was all of these at the same time. Kassav made suave, irresistibly upbeat music with a carnival spirit. 
that purposefully stayed connected to its Afro-Caribbean roots. Its albums mingled love songs and party songs with socio-political commentary, sometimes couched in double entendres. The core of the Zouk beat drew on Guoka from Guadeloupe and Cheval Hua from Martinique, two traditions rooted in the drumming of enslaved Africans. Through our music, we question our origins, Mr. Devario said in a 2016 interview with the French newspaper Liberation. What were we doing there? Who, we, who were we? Let me start that again. What were we doing there? We, who were black and spoke French, like African-Americans in the United States, we were looking for answers to pick up the thread of a story that had been confiscated from us. He added, without being politicians or activists, Kassav carried it all. From our faces to the themes in our songs, everything was very clear. We were West Indian. There should be no mistake. We wanted to mark our difference. Jacob F. Devariot was born in Paris on November 21st, 1955, but he soon moved to Guadeloupe, where his mother, Cecile Devariot, was born. She raised him as a single parent and did domestic work. They lived in Guadeloupe and Martinique in Paris and for two years in Senegal. When Jacob was 10, he asked his mother for a bicycle. She gave him a guitar instead, considering it less dangerous. After returning to France, he joined rock bands in the 1970s, playing songs from Chuck Berry and Jimi Hendrix, and worked as a studio guitarist. His own music increasingly looked to Caribbean and African styles, including compas from Haiti, Congolese sukus from what was then Zaire, rumba from Cuba, High Life from Ghana, and Makosa from Cameroon. In 1979, in Paris, Mr. Devariot met Pierre-Edouard Decimus, a musician from Guadeloupe with an ambitious concept for a new band, strongly rooted in the West Indies, but reaching outward. We were looking to find a soundtrack that synthesized all the traditions and previous sounds, but that could be exported everywhere, Mr. Devariot told Liberation. Kassav released its debut album, Love and Ka Dance, in 1979. It was successful because it was Antillian music. It was local, Mr. Devario told Reggae and African Beat magazine in 1986. But it was also better made than other Antillian discs. The instruments and vocals were in tune. There were more sounds like synthesizers and things like that. All the things that were not heard in Antillian records. As the band pumped out new music, its early influences from disco and rock receded. Kassav simultaneously brought out its Caribbean essence and mastered programming and electronic sounds. Kassav toured across continents and built a huge loyal audience, particularly in Africa, where it has drawn stadium-sized crowds since the 1980s. The Senegalese songwriter Yusod Ndour wrote of Mr. Devario on Twitter, the West Indies, Africa, and music have just lost one of their greatest ambassadors. He welcomed collaborations with musicians from Africa and the Caribbean, appearing on Wycliffe Jean's 1997 album, The Carnival, and recording songs with the Ivory Coast reggae singer Alpha Blondie and with Tufan, a group from Togo. Mr. Devario, whose immunity was weakened because he had a kidney transplant, was hospitalized with COVID-19 on July 12th and placed in a medically induced coma before his death. Throughout the band's career, even after Kassav was signed to multinational labels and encouraged to sing in English, the band's lyrics were always in French and Tilly's Creole, insisting on its island heritage. 
Music is a stronger language than the language itself, Mr. Devario said in 1986. If the music pleases, the language isn't important. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Adia Benton. Adia Benton is a cultural anthropologist at Northwestern University with interests in global health, biomedicine development and humanitarianism and professional sports. She writes frequently on her blog, ethnography911.org and on Twitter as under the same handle, ethnography911, connecting these issues with broader conversations about political economy, race and gender. Her first book was HIV and Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone, which appeared with the University of Minnesota Press in 2015. This book explores the treatment of AIDS as an exceptional disease and the recognition and care that this takes away from other diseases and public health challenges in poor countries. Her second book, The Fever Archive, is under contract with the University of Minnesota Press. Series of essays about the 2014 to 2016 West African Ebola epidemic, focusing on the militarization of public health response, U.S. biosecurity and the global war on terror, and what she calls the racial immunologics of triage and the politics of care, and much, much more. But I'll I'll stop there so that we can start talking. Adia Benton, thank you so much for coming back to COVID calls. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here again. So. Um... Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to the obituary and I was thinking, yes, we totally used to listen to that. There's a, a song by Kassav, the Zouk Glasses, La Medica Monduni. And it's the song that you get people to get, like if you want people to get up to dance, that exactly. would come on like a bid. So, so I, I totally, and Al, you know, with playing with Alpha Blondie and, and Use and Door, yeah. this, yeah, it's, it's, it's the jam. I, I didn't have any of Kasav's records, but I have Yusuf Andor's records and I and and had found the music through that. And then last night as I was preparing, I put some of it on in my house. And it is. It's like I looked all of a sudden my kids are both moving. <laughs> I didn't like tell them I was going to play music. And then the nine year old comes over. He's like, what's that? I was like, all right, we'll talk later. This is. <laughs> but yeah, it was powerful stuff. Yeah, it's the, in fact, someone I think was on Twitter saying, um, if you wanted to get like the Francophone Africans up at the Caribbean dance, like you, at the Caribbean party, that's how you do it. That's you what of, you do it? You, you, put, you uh, put it on Kassab. So, or the Anglophone, no, maybe it's getting the Anglophone Africans up. I don't know. So there's some kind of, yeah, you know, yeah sort yeah. of cross diaspora situation. It was yeah. amazing to read his childhood living in Guadeloupe, Senegal, and France. Yeah, it's it's a very it's and it's a but it's like a very um, interesting kind of colonial move, totally. right? Um, which is a lot of the stuff that I talk about when I teach my Africa classes, which I haven't done in a little while. Like I, <laughs> I haven't taught in a while, and when I did, I was teaching like you know stuff about pandemics or whatever. <laughs> Do not are, recommend. Are you teaching right now? I'm not. I'm I'm sort of on leave. I feel okay. like I'm saying that, but I feel like um, it feels sort of not real because of how everything has been for the past year and a half. So, is Northwestern back in person? Uh, it would seem so. So, um, one thing that Northwestern did so they they had this vaccine mandate fairly early, hmm. but even when they're when students were actually on campus. 
last year, but it was selective. Um, so some of my students were actually zooming in from their camp from their campus housing. Mm -hmm. um, testing, there's routine testing. Um, so a fairly low, low prevalence or low incidence, I guess, is really what was happening. Low incidence of COVID on campus. People were being tested routinely and now that most are vaccinated and requ required to do so. So um, we shall see though. Um, I think there was a, an effort to reduce classroom density as well. Mm. So. Yeah, I, I was talking with a colleague at a different university last night and they've done everything you just described, like they've done it right. And it's like, you know, I know that two weeks in somebody in, on the weekend is going to go to a party with friend at state unvaccinated university and there we're going to be. But we seem dedicated to this proposition of bringing students back and, and going through the motions at least for a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what happens when you sell the experience, you know, the campus experience right. as a part of that, as a part of that. Um, I mean, and I guess to some extent, that's what we've also trained into the educational experience, which is that presence is fundamentally a part of it. Right, right. So, um, that said, you know, we're in a kind of un unprecedented moment. Um, yeah, so yeah, so it, it's 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 back and forth. We kind of, but I, I certainly I understand the desire. I also to, to you know to bring people back, but I I also yeah I'm skeptical, right? Like there's no, yeah, yeah. I guess you can always you can do almost everything right, but I think your community has to be fairly small, and you all have to kind of have the same commitment, level of vigilance. And uh, level of risk avoidance, I think. Um, I was reading something, I think it was by Douglas Crimp, you know, the, the AIDS activist and scholar who, who said something like, our, promiscu our promiscuity is killing us, but it's also going to save us. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the, the fact is that from, from your promiscuity, like you, you, you already take all of these precautions. Like you're, yeah. you're trying to kind of, you're inv invested in, once you're invested in that, that yeah. ethos, you do what you can to protect yourself and others. Um, yeah. So you, you can't have both. Right. <laughs> you know, like you, you, you can't sort of be risky and right. promiscuous. So there's, so I think that's sort of the, the, the balance that we have to, the balance that we have to sort of figure out for ourselves and figure out as a community. And I don't know if that, that the, that the university community, especially the corporate campus is prepared to, to foster that. No, maybe not. It, it's, it's, it also, I've realized too, the, um, the degree to which, and a lot of this kind of conversation has been focused on K through 12, but I think it should include college age as well. And, I guess any age, but certainly that age, people are still learning how to be in a room together, how to listen to each other. I mean, I think maybe even they have, they relearn that at age 18 or 19. Um, those are important skills at that juncture in your life to pick up. So I think there are things lost by not being in person as you, but as you said, it's like um, deciding <laughs> that from some office in some main building on the seventh floor and how that plays out in an individual department or, or community of, of you know teachers and learners is is really hard it's it's a thing you know and i think i, I was i think i might have said this like a year ago is it probably it probably can work in certain types of schools um 
I, I think a lot about how Northwestern in particular, but it's not alone, have their own power plants, have their own, you know, basically right. Right. They, sure. they become sort of walkable communities in, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and if you can, if you maintain a bubble like that, cool, right? Like you maybe can pull it off, but I don't think um, we're not in these hermetically sealed, there are multiple kinds of socialities in schools, right? You have your sort of home bubble and then you have, you have your school bubble and you have your home bubble and, and, right. and the movement bet movements between them. And unless you're regulating all these dimensions, you, unless you basically, or essentially have, you're like a you know, little self-contained town. <laughs> you're, you're, so you have the ability to do it, right. but you, in, under this, the, the current sort of, I guess, cultures of governance is what I keep calling it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and modes of sociality. I don't think it's, it's, you kind of have to think about how people are, how people engage, how people interact. When do people come into contact and how, how do they sort of intimately mingle before you can assume that you, you're minimizing their risk? Um, yeah, it's something. I also had, a, had, my kids were in school in Chicago in a small sort of Montessori, crunchy, hippie school. And there were two cases the entire year last year, two, two quarantine periods. Mm. But that's because, you know, 500 people made the commitment. Yeah, right. I, I mean, that, that's essentially it. And there, you know, there are maybe a hundred in the school, but that parents, grandparents, that meant that the community had to do things. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> in, in yeah, Chicago. Yes. What an accomplishment. But, but as you said, it, it was all hands, right? Absolutely. You know, I was on a committee that met monthly. Sometimes we met in wow. emergency. It just, we, we went through, they had contact tracers. There was testing, you know, and, and as soon as vaccines were available, 90 something percent of all faculty and staff got it. Isn't that amazing how that, how that, that scale that problem of scale um, sort of plays out. I mean, I'm, I'm in South Korea. Uh, so, you know, here the case rates have remained by us standards there. You wouldn't even discuss them almost in 2,220 something that uh, 22 deaths, I think total in the country, which is and, and astonishing. It is. And, and, and I've gotten used to it now. I've been here six months, but you go down the street, doesn't matter where you are, anywhere I've been in the country, everybody's wearing a mask outdoors. Doesn't matter. Construction, <laughs> construction site, bus stop, shopping mall, college, classroom. It's just what people do. And um, we didn't have to sacrifice Korean democracy to do it. It just became the commitment of what, of what people did. So it can scale. Those kinds of things can scale. Right. And I, I can't imagine how it, it wouldn't like, I mean, I, I mean, I, when I think about the things that the, the principal did, the things that the student, you know, we actually, they measured, they went and did, they had two independent testing things for ventilation. If you, you know, those silly things like if you keep the windows two inches open and, and have this. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Scalable. And it's just a piece of, fabric on your face. I know. <laughs> like, I have people telling me to take mine off when I'm outside. You know, they'll be like, oh, you know, you're fine now. And I'm like, eh, I'm just, 
I forgot. And my kids forget to take theirs off because they wore them all the time in their school. So it's sort of like, I mean, though I did have a little bit of a kerfuffle with my five-year-old today about his poor, poor fit, poorly fitting mask and his, I'm tired of my mask. I was like, dude, you got to get your, get your act together. (laughs) Yeah. You got to get untired. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, bro. You're fine. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, Well, I, you know, I have a lot of other things to ask you about, but I'm glad we were able to to talk about these things. And uh, I went back and looked and I spoke with you and, um, and Jay Aronson. Yeah. Uh, on April 14th of last of 2020. Um, and at that time I went back and looked, the United States was reporting 25,239 deaths. Um, and a couple of things about that. One, of course, there was an April 14, 2020, <laughs> I, you know, and um, and I remember our talk very well, but I was like, was it that much time has elapsed? But the, also I was struck by that number of deaths was higher than I thought by April. And it reminds me how late March and early April, how apocalyptic that time was in the United States. We went from hundreds to tens of thousands in just such a short interval of time. I, I, what I wanted to ask you, um, just sort of setting that context a little bit, is whether uh, I've been asking people if they would share a memory or something that has stuck with them that they go back to throughout this period. And, I, you know, asking people to think of one thing is maybe not fair, but is there something that that resonates for you really strongly over this past 18 months? Um, you know, it's... I, um, you know, I can't think of anything specific, but it, I, I think I, I told you that my father passed away on, it was August 8th, so uh, 17 days ago, two days before his 75th birthday, and his funeral was on his sister's birthday, which was like, eh. <laughs> um, but we were, I was, when I was at home with my family, my mom told me things that I somehow missed like about who, who passed away because she was sort of doing this risk assessment thing about who was going to visit my dad. And, you know, there were some people from her side of the family who were coming through and she said, well, you know, they're going to have to wear their masks. You know, I don't think that they've been uh, vaccinated, but she started to kind of explain how there came to be a cluster of, um, a cluster of infections and one, and her sister-in-law passed away. And I did not know that. Um, and she said, well, this is why I would think that they'd be very invested in vaccinating because all of them got sick around the same time. Um, she was in the hospital and, and it kind of, and it came after this, um, this moment where they said, we can gather together without, with, 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 we don't have to be too cautious amongst ourselves. It's just family. Let's all gather together. And this is sort of the the sort of event, super spreader event, for lack of a better way to describe it, this phrase I really hate. Um, 
and I, I had this moment of like, I don't know what, what to call it, except, oh, this is this is sort of the vernacular accounting of public public health, the sort of contact tracing moment, you know, where they say, well, no, you can't all gather together. You can't, you don't know what every person in the family has been doing up until this point. You know, if you're going to come together, make sure it's a safe gathering. And so um, that's like one of the, the moments that sticks out in the sort of recent memory. I think there was a lot of other stuff that, that went on, um, including all of the things that actually, there's one other one that kind of gets mm. me. I was taking a playwriting, I was in a playwriting workshop, sitting in the theater, where we would do our workshopping is this black box on the north side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I was doing some media stuff in the basement of the theater and I came back up and, and they said, oh, we're going to have um, our 10 minute play, whatever that we do, they're gonna be, the judges will choose this number, mm -hmm. are you going to come? And I said, oh, I won't be there because Rage Against the Machine is playing on that day. <laughs> So absolutely not. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> At the same time that I was telling them, yeah, I don't think this 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 virus is going away anytime soon. Yeah. And I look back at that moment and say, what the, like, yeah. is that really going to be in, you know, this huge crowd of people throwing each other around in, in May? Yeah. Like, no, I was not. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of a funny, like, oh, no, I'm not going. I No, I'm not going to be at this play. I'm going to be yeah. enjoying I'm gonna myself. Be, I'm going to be in a huge crowd. I'm going to be in a mosh pit. <laughs> that's what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I, that's so interesting, that observation that um, that sort of, like, phases of realization. And, and I, I still, I, I had stuff on my calendar even into well into April, like well into doing COVID calls, I still had like early summer travel and, and it was there. And you know how like your calendar, like subtly works on you, right? You kind of yes. glance at it like, Oh, that thing, Oh, that thing. And you could come back. That's what calendars for. And then at one point in April, I was like, why am I keeping this stuff? I'm like traveling. I'm not going abroad in June. Right. Why, why is it here? And yeah. taking it off the calendar was like a real bummer. I mean, yeah. that was like, for me, it was like a moment like, oh, I guess it comes off the calendar. Like, cancel it all. Yeah, that was, yeah. it was definitely that for rage. <laughs> I even, this was, some, that was supposed to be my year for concerts. I had to take my Pet Shop Boys, New Order. I was just sort of going through the list. Oh, Black, co Black Coffee. Well, I was just <laughs> I had crossing them off. I know, just, it was, it was actually really sad because I was getting all these update emails, you know. Oh, don't worry. You don't. You can have a refund, or you can. And I was like, no, just keep my money. <laughs> I I'm sorry <laughs> to hear about your father. Yeah, it's been hard. Um, he was a decent human, you know, like that. And and that's if 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 nothing else, he had many accomplishments. But that was the the sort of takeaway. Um, there were like three days of rituals, so I. Um, it, you know, so so we had more than enough time to kind of go through all this different, um, I guess, <sighs> I want to call it stages of mourning mm -hmm. um, and recognition and acknowledgement. But, it, and, and it, it, yeah, it was sort of like a, 
And even, actually, I was thinking about him even even up to that point. He would be like, are people coming in with masks? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he was like, you need to check the purifier filter. <laughs> you know, like, he was fastidious like that? Yes. Yeah. He, bought, he bought air filters for like every... Yeah. For, for, for the room, big rooms and, you know, all that stuff. So I think he was probably more fastidious than I was when I was cleaning out his car. It's just piles of used masks. And I was like, dude. <laughs> so do you, do you think people have, um, because of COVID and because we talk about death in every country around the world every day now, uh, do you think people are somehow getting, I don't know, getting better is not the right phrase I'm looking for, but are people getting more acclimated to talking about that at the personal level, do you think? I mean, are we acquiring new skills in like socializing death? Because it's such a taboo in some cultures and so not a taboo in other cultures. But I wonder, I've wondered about that. That's, you know, that's a really interesting question and what I should probably think about as like as an anthropologist as a cultural anthropologist because that's sort of like we, you know we mark all we talk about our rites of passage and, and all of that and the rituals and um it's hard for me to say because I come from a family that's very much like so when my mom was preparing the obituary which I ended up editing for why <laughs> of course you know oh I'm the writer in the family there's always a writer in the family. You need a, that's what you, if nothing else, you need a, you need a person to write the obit. Well, well it's, you know, it, it actually used to be her sister because her sister used to work for like a, a local newspaper as the secretary. And so she was like always typing the obituary. So she had these collections, but my mom's mom actually used to keep a whole collection of obituaries and programs under a cushion in one of her big armchairs. And so if you wanted to know something about like, so-and-so who died three years ago, you just went through her like archive of obits, wow. archive of programs. Right. And there was a similar thing happening with my mom when she was trying to write it. She sort of pulls out this like stack and starts going, like pulling and going, oh yeah, you're gonna have to do this and you have to, you know, she's sort of picking and choosing bits like, oh, I should talk about his upbringing in Seattle. Oh yes, I should. And I was like, you know, the funeral home does this. <laughs> you know, like you can bring them stuff, but they're kind of like experts. Mm -hmm. um, so it, in some ways, I feel like the way we deal with and talk about death in my family, which I think is reflected in a sort of rural South Carolina um, thing is, is different, say, than some others. Um, mm -hmm. Though I did notice that like a lot of my friends who are of a certain age, I'll talk about their parents, like how their parents are sure. quite like, oh, did you know so-and-so died? And like, that's sort of the way that they sort of enter conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but what was also quite fascinating about this was going to the funeral home, um, mm. buying a plot at the cemetery. And the, the, there's this language around death um, and the death business that was so, so striking to me. Um, they refer to you like before your loved one dies, they refer to it as a, a moment of pre-need, which I was like, pre-need. <laughs> so I'm looking at all of the signs everywhere and going, wow. what is huh. pre-need? And, and then at some point I went, ah, yes, we are pre-need. The rules change once you're in need, by the way. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So like the cemetery, if you, if you are buying a plot before you need it, <laughs> um, need. they're willing to take a check, a personal check. Huh. They're not willing to take a personal check if the person has already died because you could screw yeah. them over and they have been screwed over before. And the, the, the retort is always, this, this is a quote from the woman who sold us the plot because you are buying a piece of land mm-hmm. and you get a deed for it. <laughs> and she says, um, what are you going to do? Dig him up? You know, like if the check uh-huh. doesn't, She's, she's and she didn't want to call those people assholes. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was implied, you know, and, and they're southern. These are southern women, so they're yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh my goodness. So, um, yeah. So the rules change. Mm. Um, it's a lot about property um, in ways that I, I hadn't fully recognized about property. Um, this legal, all of a lot of different legal processes and practices that kind of build up that cluster around the business of death. Um, So even the death certificate is like, you know, it's the coroner or physician does this official work, but the funeral home processes the paperwork, Mm -hmm. which, you know, like I'm a, I'm a lover of boring things and those things (laughs) and those, or at least a scholar of boring things as far as I'm concerned. And those things totally, um, made me think a lot about like what all of this must look like and feel like and be like for people having to deal with um, just sort of this, this what feels like a, a, an avalanche of death, <clears throat> especially where I was, which was in the South, which was experiencing a much larger number of deaths. Like I can't imagine what it would have been like to work in those industries Oh, yeah. In April, May, June um, of last year. Yeah, they're used to a certain metabolism, um, and I'm and I've I've wondered. I had, you're making me think about some aspects of this that I hadn't really thought about. That what's been in the news, of course, are the mortuary trucks, like in New York City and in April and in other big cities. But what's gotten less attention is like rural mortuaries, rural cemeteries, sort of semi-rural places where to go from, you know, maybe small, small numbers, mm-hmm. but to go from a few to a dozen is a yeah. big difference. And that probably is truer. And um, because those happen to us, uh, those happen to be, so, so my, my case is urban. And in fact, this is going to sound really weird, but my mom bought a plot for my dad that was like, next to Jim Clyburn, Jim Clyburn bought a whole, you know, the representative from South Carolina. Right, yeah, yep, he bought like, he bought all some real estate. He bought some real estate there under a tree and like, yeah. cool. and it was, it's actually quite shocking. His, his tombstone is there already, by the way. Um, wow. I know. I, I, we, we, we move in elite circles in death. I guess so. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it was fully intentional. It's the one that's down the street from my parents' house. So, um, but I, this so but the the family members I talked about were actually are actually rural. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was growing up, when I would stay with my grandmother in this rural area, she actually used to visit everyone who was sick, deliver food, um, just check in on folks. And I imagine I was trying to imagine what that must have been like 
for this family of mine um, who were often the people who went to check in on the, you know, like what happens when all of those, there are 20, 30, 40 people. Um, Where did they seek care? Because a lot of the rural folks are not close to hospitals. Um, They are, and if they are, they're not appropriately resourced um, for all of the, the, you know, intensive care. And then this is the push, right? Just as you're saying, like, where are people buried? Who, Who handles Mm-hmm. All the who handles the the bodies? Who who is who is going to be doing that? And who can gather to mourn? Um, you know, is the rural church going to do? Going to be able to hold it? And who will come? Who will be? Who will they be able to? You know, most of these places. I don't know if my grandmother's church ever got air conditioning. I'm thinking not. Mm, right. Very, very hot. Right. <laughs> so you know, like they're all of these like really bizarre. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of the membership is older. Yeah. So it's like it, the whole ecosystem surrounding death, not just sort of the business of death, but the social and cultural norms surrounding death and, 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 and passing the person on to the ancestors, all that stuff is affected. And this, you know, this was true during Ebola as well. Like they, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, yeah. It, it's similar uh, in West Africa, similar in Sierra Leone, these kind of. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, people, t- I mean, I was thinking about this. I remember when people used to go and touch the, touch the person who's in the, mm-hmm. which, you know, always gave me the heat of GBs, but I had to go, I went to a lot of funerals. Growing up. Um, but I also went to funerals in, in West Africa. And that was sort of seen as the source of the, of, of multiple clusters of Ebola was that, mm-hmm. You know, well-known, well-liked person dies. No one's going to, um, it's not going to be a small ceremony. It's not, and it's not going to be just that like hour in the church or wherever. It's going to be a wake, visitation. There can be people who prepare the body. Um, There are going to be people who want to gather and pay their respects at at various points. Um, And so one of the things that had been known about the about Ebola is that the body is often the most infectious at that moment, at you know, after death. It's where, you know, that's usually where the person has died because they are overwhelmed by virus um, and organ failure and all of that stuff. And so um, the, the movement, just handling the body in the aftermath of, a, of an Ebola death was dangerous. And so, and again, this was known and um, it was also known that one needed to kind of start to take account or account for that by having, by changing the kinds of rituals surrounding death. So even if, even if you were going the sort of conventional route of just taking somebody to mortuary, having them embalmed, blah, 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 <laughs> all, all of that stuff needed to be body, where the body moves, who moves it, you know, are you taking it to the mother village, the maternal village or the paternal village? All of that stuff is an opportunity for the virus to spread. And right. so safe, safe and dignified burials became kind of a touchstone for anthropologists involved in Ebola, but it also became part of the public health practice. Um, it also, it might, it caused some resistance right. in certain places because it wasn't appropriately explained. I won't say that it's because people were like, oh, we are you know, beholden to our rituals. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Mm. Uh, 
and it depended on where it was happening and all of that other stuff. But it also affected non-Ebola deaths. Right. Um, so if they didn't have, if somebody died and the case, it was not a case, their body still had to go through protocol. Right. And that became a source of tension for a lot of people who just wanted to, you know, deal with their loved one in the appropriate way. Look, this person had a chronic illness. Look, this person had a heart attack. <laughs> Look, this person, we would like to bury our dad, you know, and they mm-hmm. were like, no, we have, you know, we have to take mm-hmm. the body away. And it caused um, a lot of tension. It was like a lot of bureaucratic administrative mm-hmm. work for people to get like a special certificate or to get some kind of relief. Um, the anthropologist Jonah Lipton actually wrote a really wonderful piece about that. Um, he, he lived in a neighborhood with um, a lot of young men. He was actually studying uh, like young men in their work and a lot of young men got put on burial teams or yeah. were hired to work on these burial teams. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was stigma for them because they were taking on this sort of hazard pay and doing this hazardous work, but it was good money. Um, it was work. Um, there was all the stuff around, like I said, non-Ebola deaths being treated like Ebola deaths mm-hmm. um, and, and all of the paperwork that, that entailed all of the possibility of, of having to deal with law enforcement. So, I mean, so I guess there's, this is sort of like the long-winded way of saying um, the epidemic changed how people do death. Um, and in some ways... And it's something that I think about a lot um, because I, I actually talked to Jonah around the time that I went to Sierra Leone in 2017 and there was a, a, a like a big mudslide. Hmm. So this was a, like a year or two after Ebola had ended, but what we were seeing, so there were, I think it, it was heavy rains, heavier than, there had been in years, you know, something like two months worth of rain in a week or something, which is bad in general, but it's really bad in a place like Sierra Leone where it actually rains a lot. Right. <laughs> like it's one right. of the wettest yeah. places right. on earth. Right. And, and all of this development was happening in this part of the city. Like basically everyone was sort of building more, building more into the hill mm-hmm. and deforesting and all of that stuff. And it kind of created sort of unstable ground. And so right. this rain pushed all of this dirt into this community and mm. killed maybe a thousand people and displaced 10 oh, or God. 15. And it happened the first, like the first or second day that I had been back that had gone there. And I was driving, leaving, leaving that part of the, the, the city, going up into the, the rural areas past the disaster site. Mm-hmm. And I saw something that I had not seen before, which is um, emergency vehicles, people in there in like, I don't know, it looked like Ebola stuff, people in their like plastic suits, all in these emergency vehicles heading to the place. And I said, you know, I don't think I've ever seen emergency vehicles before. And they're like, oh, it's because of Ebola. Like people got used to this. Uh-huh. It sort of helped build up the emergency infrastructure. But I, I felt... So I talked to some emergency folks who said, yeah, they did some things really well, but, you know, we're still kind of struggling with emergency preparedness or disaster preparedness. 
Um, so that was sort of the official tack. But what was also interesting is when I talked to Joan about it, I said, you know, it was really weird. When I came back into the city, I had we had to pull over. We were near the hospital, um, the Connaught Hospital, the central hospital in Freetown. And we had to pull over for what was essentially this planned um, processional, um, which was all of these bodies were piled into these tr huge trucks with a flag draped over it, Sierra Leone flag draped over it. And they were driving up through the city to this cemetery that was also, um, I think it might've been, it was a cemetery that was expanded for Ebola, actually. Mm. They had run out of room in the morgue from this landslide. And they were telling people, if you want to pay your respects, you know, line up, line up along the streets and we'll drive. And so they just drove all of this, these trucks up the hill. And I, I was talking to, to Jonah and I said, you know, um, I'm not sure the emergency preparedness or disaster preparedness is working besides or outside of its role in managing death. Hmm. Like it was that sort of moment yeah. where I'm on the edge of the, the, you know, like in the center of the city and kind of recognizing, yeah, they were mobile. They mobilized actually. Like people were down there digging folks out of the mud, trying, you know, delivering sort of emergency care, whatever that, whatever that looked like. But it was still about managing death. It wasn't about organizing around um, care. It wasn't about, it wasn't about organizing to, I guess, optimize life, you know, the, the, the part of biopolitics that everybody wants. Right. And that, I think that was like the hardest thing to kind of have to wrap my head around, which is Ebola offered the opportunity to do better. Hmm. And at that point, it felt like that was all it had made better. And I'm not sure if that's, but, 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 and I should say, but, or maybe it's an and, maybe what they saw and did with Ebola otherwise, like all the other stuff, the contact tracing, the, the sort of mm -hmm. active case surveillance, all that stuff, maybe that is the stuff that makes COVID um, not settle down as well. So um, I don't know if you know this, but Sierra Leone has something like, I don't even remember, I think their cases this week, they're like two. Yeah, I was before before we talked. Uh, first of all, I just want a small piece of business because I'm uh, just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Adia Benton. Um, I looked and I think it was 121 reported deaths. And I, of course, I don't know. I have to defer to you whether or not that's an artifact of of uh, reporting uh, of the way the government works other problems of trust that we need to bring to bear here or if it's actually an artifact of good pandemic control which is also so i suppose a possible yeah um 
you know, it's I'll I'll put it. I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm trying to think of the most concise way, which is, of course, the numbers are not correct because nobody's okay. number. But I'd say most people's numbers are not correct. I agree with that for, re for reasons, right? And then the reason is, if you're not testing, you're not going to find cases, like, right? And my, I'll, I'll, but but, and I want to I want to preface this with. Sierra Leone is not exactly the easiest place to get to. And, um, you know, like you can't just like get on a plane in Houston or Chicago and be in Sierra Leone. Right. Usually you have to go through Europe. Um, and, and then, and, and so one of the things that they do, and I suspect this is probably one thing they're probably really good at is making sure that you're you have a test before you arrive and a test when you get there and whatever. And I, Lord knows, I mean, I bet everyone who takes their test when they get to the airport, they probably don't all get their um, results or, or no one's enforcing their quarantine or whatever. Right. Um, but that, that alone probably does something. Um, and it's all at your expense because they know that if you're coming to Sierra Leone, you probably have some money. So you, you know, you have to show, and, and now I think with back, even with vaccination, you have to do that. And they absolutely administer that test. Now, whether you, again, who knows what they do. Um, when we talk about something like Ebola, that started like at this region, that's the sort of where we're getting Liberia and Sierra Leone meet. The reason that was able to spread is because that is a node of movement. That's a, a sort of central space of commingling and movement. And then it makes its way to Freetown. If COVID is going to make its way into Sierra Leone, it's going to be coming from Freetown and then spreading and like out. that, which is mm -hmm. essentially what I think the Spanish flu was because that was sort of like a World War One sort of kind of colonial outpost situation. Like, right. <laughs> you know, you, you enter this port, it's a trade, it's a trade, big so, trade port, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so it fans, it's an import. Yeah, it, it, it's like, but but the reason these other things move, they move they move from this forest region and kind of fan out kind of like the wars kind of like um, pretty much anything that that moves so it's it's still dense and it's still active and lively and dynamic but the flows of it are very different and so um, there's probably more COVID. But <laughs> I think one of the things that is happening is that you're you're not testing as much, but you're also having these are the people who are kind of entering through the, the port mm -hmm. um, are the people who are entering from the port are of a certain class who have moved through certain places. Um, I do have friends who say, oh, you know, this doesn't hold for East Africa for obvious reasons. There there's a lot freer movement. Um, with Indian Ocean, like there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of a very different dynamics. Same thing with North Africa. Um, so there's movement between um, the Middle East. There's movement. I think you can, and there are parts of West Africa that actually have direct flights to the Middle East. I'm not sure if Sierra Leone is one of them. Not Sierra Leone, yeah. Yeah, I'm not. And it, well, it's usually the places with more money, right? Like Nigeria, right. Sure. Uh, Ghana. Um, and those those don't require visas, so they're they're the place that the sort of another kind of cosmopolitan elite will use, mm -hmm. right? The ones who don't want to wait for a, a visa for London to go to London, Paris, whatever. And so those dynamics also shape 
this stuff. So, so at that point, I think they actually did close land border land borders. I don't know what that actually means. Again, what hmm. does that mean in Sierra Leone? Because right. I have crossed, I have crossed the border um, with with no, you know, people cross border for shopping, um, whatever. So um, I think it's it's probably an artifact of the sort of typical data caveats that you have about mm -hmm. testing. Um, but I also think it's about flow flow of people. Um, so who, so when, but they have also had these sort of routine lockdowns mm -hmm. routine. Um, so when they're anticipating a wave, they close things down. They're just like, we're about to enter the third wave. Let's close it down. Mm -hmm. People remember that from Ebola. <laughs> that was not very long ago. Right. It was a problem for some people because if you can't make, you know, you can't make money if you if you can't go out, but I think with this masking stuff, with this, you know, people can do things. They can still do what they're expected to do. Ebola was a different kind of, I mean, I also tell, always remind people, pathogen matters. You know, Ebola, you have to have active symptoms. And at that point. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it, yeah. it's people know it, it's the thing with this, who knows? Exactly. It's traveling in the air. So the other kinds of precautions have to be taken, but they are precautions that people can take while also being mobile. Uh, just to follow up on one part of that, to, to the extent that you're able to track it, the discourse around COVID in Sierra Leone, um, does it always invoke Ebola? Um, that's, or is that's Ebola... Is Ebola, in a sense, sort of now quarantined, an attempt to do it? Because it, government always will want to declare an end to a thing and move past. But your amazing details about just what people are wearing at the disaster site. So even if the if the the structure of dealing with d death may very well have changed, but government may not want to acknowledge that. And I'm so curious as to the holdover, how it shapes does one disaster shapes another even in ways that people don't want to acknowledge, but are, are they acknowledging it openly? I think if they are, it's to kind of explain success, right? So it's both to explain success, but also to kind of mob to mobilize, uh, mobilize a, a certain kind of action, right? Like if, if we are able to kind of sacrifice now, we don't have this problem later. So I, I would, I mean, I would put it in that kind of, this is how Ebola is the referent. On the other hand, when I talk to folks about Ebola, uh, COVID as, as a risk, COVID is still, I think, seen as something that if it did happen, it happened in the city, it happened in Freetown, it didn't happen, you know, it, it's coming from elsewhere. And I think that might be the difference. I think the fact that it started probably with elites may, may change the changed the thinking about this. Whereas Ebola was very much like rural, rural people <laughs> doing rural things mm -hmm. that got out of hand, you know, or 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 um, white people who came from one disaster bringing it to from from whatever or right. Department right. of Defense and Tulane, whatever it was. The, the 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 sort of background the thing that made it possible is very is different right 
Um, Cause they're like, oh, it came from China. And then like, then it went to Europe and then it came to us, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's sort of like, it's just all of that. So I, I, my, mm-hmm. my suspicion is that origins and who it affected probably also shapes that. But the other thing is like, oh, at least we're, at least we have some experience. At least we've gone through, we've gone through that hell mm-hmm. that we, which Ebola was absolutely described to me by multiple people as hell. <laughs> it was hell, right. especially if they were dealing, if they were frontline workers, especially if they had their businesses shut down, yeah. especially if they were um, affected by lockdowns. Yeah, you know. I think we've just frozen for just a but, moment. Um, She's you're back. Froze. It's fine. No, yeah, but no. I, I don't think that there were many Ebola survivors who didn't also have multiple multiple family members um, who, who who died. Like it, it, I think it's very right. sort of accepted that most survivors um, lost other pe- lost other people that they were close to. Um, which I think is actually the COVID, you know, that that's what COVID is um, uh, as well. I think um, the survivor, the survivors of COVID are likely to have had other people around them who were very sick or very sick. And I think more often than not, um, if they had a death, they, if they had a death in their family at the time that they were around the time they were sick, it was often probably likely a COVID um, one, but I don't know. So if you're, if you're doing the kind of work you do and so finishing up a project about Ebola and now here comes COVID, can you, I don't, maybe you don't want to give away the ending of your project, but I mean, I'm curious of how you, because I struggle with this all the time. How do I, I was finished with a project and then Donald Trump got elected. I was like, I can't write about disaster politics in America. And this guy is coming. And I was right. It changed the project. But I don't know how, like, how are you, so much of what you've just said now refracts Ebola through this new lens, Mm -hmm. overused metaphor. But I think in this case, it's pretty apt. do we just have to bracket off these pandemics and epidemics and say, we're going to deal with them in their own and we know future things are coming and I'll talk about that later. Or is that important work for an anthropologist to do to just meet the moment and put COVID on top of that? Right. That's a great, that's actually a really wonderful question um, because everyone has been asking me, so are you actually going to talk about COVID because they hear me go Ebola COVID, you know, I sort of have, yeah, it's difficult for me to disentangle, um, but what it's helping me to do is actually refine some things. I, what I'm finding is that very little is different, <laughs> which is weird. Um, but, I, but also, um, I I kind of have to put it aside. I have to put it aside insofar as I don't. I do think that the pathogen matters to some extent um, for a bunch of reasons, which I'll probably end up having to talk about in my book. Um, but there's some things that I used to have to explain that I probably don't have to anymore. 
So, you know, like, like when I say things like, um, yes, people resisted this. Yes, you know, the the ways that sort of electoral politics mattered. Yeah. Is whatever. I had to like do all this sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't have to do that setup anymore. Like people are not like, why did people feel this way? Yeah. They know because they're in the middle of it. Like I actually don't have to. There's certain things that I don't have to explain now. Even Um, just what, yeah. Yeah. Like when I talk about like, um, how the police ended up clashing with, yeah. um, like the police ended up clashing with people who didn't want them to take their mom away. Like, yeah, people are like, oh yeah, <laughs> got it. Yeah, like there's no. I think there's some things that, that, or or people were saying that they think that maybe the Department of Defense had something to do with this sort of irresponsible laboratory leak, mm-hmm. or maybe the rapidity with which this vaccine was created. What you know was part of Pharma's plan. Like, like it's not it's not far fetched for people anymore to think that there's some people who have that who believe in certain kinds of conspiracies related to um, the pharmaceutical industry department. Yeah, not at all. And so, uh, and this exoticization of like there's parts of the world where people don't trust medicine, and so then. You have to teach them how to do, it. and that that Western gaze of that, and then you, you flip over here, and you're like, "Oh, wait, there's Tony Fauci standing next to Donald Trump at a lectern, and looks like Trump's going to punch him." Like, "Oh, I see." Right, like, exactly. That's turn the mirror, folks, and so maybe there's. I hadn't thought about that. That explanatory work that you mm-hmm. there's that a you lot of stuff. specialize in is yeah. now there's a higher level of. It's a hard one torturous understanding that I hope isn't lost. It won't be lost in, in in the circles of cultural anthropology, but one rung out from that. I hope it's not, it's not lost. I, I want to be cognizant of your time um, because we've been talking on this and I, can we talk a minute about sports or do you need to go? We can wrap up and follow yeah, up another time. Cause I hear my, my kids seem to be just sort of fighting amongst themselves. Yeah, no, I hear, I'm hearing <laughs> good sounds in the background. I, um, well, just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Adia Benton today. And um, so you're working also on, on sports and that's another project coming up for you. It's been a theme I've been tracking throughout COVID calls ever since the summer of 2020, when my father said to me, um, if you want to, if, if you really want to talk about how COVID is going to impact people in the South, you have to think about what's going to happen in football season. And I remember he told me that in like June of 2020. And I thought, and I'm from, I'm fifth generation from Texas. And I said, come on, dad. I mean, there's, there's limits to how far this this is a public health emergency. And then all summer, what did they talk about? Will we, be able to, will we be able to bring people back to stadiums? How many people can come? Season ticket holders. It became like, and of course, it was it was a way of making sense of a much larger problem. And there's a lot we could unpack there about football as uh, talking about life in the South. But I've been following it since then. And so I was really thrilled to know that you're working on that and just want to give you a chance to like, what are you tracking right now in terms of COVID and <laughs> COVID and sport. So I was super interested in football for reasons that have nothing to do with. Uh, interestingly, I was like kind of going with 
um, I was going against the medical anthropology grain, which is to probably talk about traumatic brain injury, but I wanted to talk about like the business of, of professional sports and, and professional football in, in general, because I was sort of like, how is it that my, my family that, you know, presumably has this sort of progressive stance, like, why is that the obsession? Like if my parents came to see me, they'd be like, okay, especially my mom, she's like, what football, football game is on? Like, I don't even care as long as it's people running into each other <laughs> with, you know, with this oblong ball. And so I was like, what yeah. is this? Your family and my family need to get together. So there's the most gentle people in the world. And they're like, but at three o'clock, we're going to watch people just totally destroy each other physically for two exactly. hours. Exactly. That, that's the thing, right? And they're, you know, and, it, and I understand it to some extent. It's like, run, you see them, these guys running and they like run 80 yards. And, oh, that's amazing. But I was sort of interested in like the, the combine and this whole, like how they measure everybody and, you know, their jumps and their, you know, <laughs> and I was like, this seems a lot like, this feels like, this feels like auction block behavior. Like I kind of, and, and I sort of started wanting to trace um, the pipeline and the business side and the legal side. So I had friends who worked in the NFL legal office. I had friends who were kind of, I actually had a Lyft driver who was like, I used to be the satellite guy and I actually filmed the combine. But if you're willing to work, you can come and work for me and you can hang out and, and all the stuff. And so I was like, oh, I should totally do this. Cause I, I you know, I train, I'm like, oh, you're muted. I got so excited, I, I was muted. I just, once, just want to put a, a pin in this, because this is why I love talking to anthropologists. You were talking to the Lyft guy, <laughs> and then it turned, go, keep going. I just, I'm just <laughs> noting that for the record. <laughs> talking to this Lyft guy, and he said, yeah, he was like, oh, I, I have all of these amazing things on tape from all of these roasts, you know, like r coaches being roasted or whatever, the, yeah. hall, the Hall of Fame stuff. And he said, you know, I do this on the side, but I still do satellite work. Like I still, I, I take the truck to the game and whatever as like my, you know, retirement thing. And, I, and he gave me his card and I, and he said, I can get you into the combine, you know, as long as you, um, as long as you're willing to do some work for us. And so I started to think, okay, this is actually a viable project. Um, I know someone who um, has, she had three brothers in the pros who's also a public health person and heads up a study on, on brain injury and health. So um, she said, yeah, I would like to help. So I was kind of like, okay, cool. Um, maybe I could do this project. So I was sort of interested in the sort of science study side of, of football, but also as a person who kind of imagines herself somewhat athletic, who trained for endurance events, and, you know, 10 years ago, I also was, you know, I know what it's like to kind of always be training Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of interested in like, what is that like for people who are trying to kind of reach this elite level? Mm -hmm. um, because there isn't a lot of ethnographic richness. Most football social science, football social science studies is kind of like, um, I'd say cultural studies, which is needed, right? Watching tape, uh, <laughs> watching tape, interviewing folks, but not necessarily understanding all of this, understanding the, the kind of embodied Mm -hmm. experience of it alongside the sort of social relations and political relations that are um, a part of, of, the, of football. So like, it's the only sport that I've watched that also has this extreme sort of architecture of planning built in, right? There's a coach for every, you know, every part of the game and they're all on headsets and like, 
their books and, you know, the, you know, so I just sort of was, and, and they go to these workshops where they learn about how to manage money and how to manage girls. And like, it's sort of like yeah. this weird, it, it's a, it's a, it's a corporation that I was interested in. And so with COVID, I was kind of, I, I and I watch lots of sports. Like I watch tennis, I watch basketball, baseball, even though I don't love it. I like, I've probably been to more park baseball parks than I care to admit. Um, but I, I was, I was sort of like, how do you deal with what, I mean, this is a, this is a, a labor issue on one hand. Um, it's an occupation, so an occupational health, mm-hmm. um, situation, but it's also a business with spectators, um, who, whose experience is like premised on presence, um, being there, being together. This is especially true for baseball because, like, I went to see the Red Sox and White Sox, Red Sox all the time because Fenway's amazing. But like, who cares what's going on on the diamond? <laughs> like, oh, it's, it's all about, and it's vocalizing. It's right, about, right, yeah. It's about being with others. We had just a momentary slowdown in Adia's internet connection. She's back now. Right. I was worried about that. So um, <laughs> they're probably all watching like Pokemon or whatever. Um, <laughs> Family bandwidth negotiations are just a feature of the pandemic that has also been underexplored. But you're talking about the, the experience of the managerial side, and then there's the labor side, and then there's the the crowd side. The crowd, right, exactly. And so, you know, I was kind of like, how do you do major tennis tournaments this way? Um, what kinds of considerations, like how do you, I mean, it, and that's the thing is like thinking about how different sports are managed as business and how different af- different kinds of athletes are managed as labor. You know, so these women tennis players are not in the same um they're not in the same sort of ecosystem, work ecosystem or labor ecosystem as the more, I think, dispensable or expendable um, professional football player. Mm. You know, bigger teams, um, they're kind of like, they're basically pawns on, on a chessboard as far as I'm right. concerned. Not that they want to hear that. They're talented pawns. <laughs> but they're, being, they're kind of being moved, in, moved around and manipulated by um, really wealthy more often than not white men. Mm-hmm. And so the um, so race matters, gender matters. Um, all of these link up to the you know to the political political economy of, of well, I say political economy of sort of US labor in, in my mind. I mean it's not the same with tennis, it's also international. But all of these things kind of um, they interest me and, and COVID sort of threw a wrench into it. Like, how do you, how do you, I, I actually, here's the example that I would, I would for, for football, there was a moment where I knew it was serious when the football scouts weren't able to travel hmm. and not just the football scouts, the football scouts weren't able to travel. All of the management guys for NFL. So the people who sit in the office were like, Oh, we can't, we can't do meetings anymore. Like they, when they weren't having meetings, that's when I started to go, ah, <laughs> all of these older guys with money yeah, don't want to be, be in rooms together. They don't want to yeah. get 
means what, you know, like something is going to, how are they going to think about proximity and intimacy amongst their assets? These players, right? Um, these laborers, these workers, do are our play are the players now going to imagine themselves uh, as workers and in a, in a particular way and this i think and so that's when looking at different sports matters so like basketball which actually has a better organized union mm-hmm. uh, or players association <laughs> um it's, it's a very different yeah. they, there's a very different set of, of of discussions about what it means to work what it means to be compensated for, what it means to be protected labor, what it means to like, you know, even the stuff that like paying taxes and whether they get paid or not, the, the, contra- the sort of contractual obligations of their work are, are shifted during a, 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 an infectious disease outbreak. Hmm. Um, so. Yeah, the, and, and the convergence of that with, uh, with you know, George Floyd's murder and the a- aftermath of that and to see, I just, you know, my family's University of Texas fans and the athletes, the football players. Uh, I mean, there had already been discussion about the eyes of Texas, right. you know, the song, the eyes of Texas and the, and the deep racist history of that song. Um, and so that converging and then how does it manifest itself? And you, so you're starting to see players speaking, this is college. So first of all, they're uncompensated laborers, speaking out, taking COVID precautions and talking about racism. And it's all there in the sports channel. Right. And I'm watching and, and we're saying, yeah, I, we've, we've relegated sports too often to some sort of sideshow of American politics and American American racial politics and it's now it's leading it leads exactly it's it's not it's not just entertainment it's not you know it's not it's not just no. it's yeah it's not just a spectacle a managed spectacle for our enjoyment and, and consumption it is something else and I, I think that's and that's the thing that I was seeing before but now it's sort of like okay <laughs> they're doing some of the work for for us like and and doing right. and, some making some of those connections for us again one of those moments where covid becomes clarifying um for people um in, in ways that i think it wouldn't have been before so so i just want to remind folks you've been listening to covid calls which you can catch most weekdays at 6 p.m eastern time and i've been very greedy with the dia benton's time today um but i'm not going to apologize for that because um it's great discussion and um, uh, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm sorry for what you've been through in your family, um, but I hope you travel safely and, and we'll need to find a time uh, to talk about all the things we didn't talk right. about today, um, but that's, that's okay. We'll, we'll, this pandemic's not going it's anywhere not anytime soon. Adia, thank you so much for sharing these thoughts in this time today. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.